Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today, I'm here at Laurel Zenobi. Laurel's a principal researcher at uh, Ad Hoc and the author of I Want a UX Job, How to Make a Career Change into UX Research. So a great resource for the podcast. So Laurel, thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. So would you start by telling us maybe first how you came to anthropology? Sure. So I came to anthropology in undergrad. I was initially a Japanese studies major, and I took a few anthropology classes that were cross-listed between Japanese studies, and I just, I fell in love with it. I particularly enjoyed learning about all the different cultures and all the neat things that people do. I really enjoyed archaeology. That's actually where I ended up kind of going with my undergrad and graduate work um, because it was something that felt like it cared about the people that it studied and it was really interested in exploring issues that affect lots and lots of people. There was lots of impact. You know, you talk about in anthropology and archaeology, you talk about work with, you know, building wells in other countries and and completely changing enterprise companies. And it's just really, really cool the impact that you can have with studying what other humans do. Humans are cool. Yeah, for sure. So when you were in that program, you know, archaeology to UX is obviously... Uh, it makes sense in lots of ways, but it's also probably not the job that's being touted in the program, right? So uh, maybe first tell me, if you could tell everybody, were you thinking at that point of going to UX or did you think you'd teach you know, in academia or what did you think you were going to do for a career? Mm-hmm. We had to take an ethnography class to graduate and I flaked on that class so hard, which is ironic given what I do now. I'm an ethnographer, basically. <laughs> so it's, it's funny how, you know, things come back around. I initially wanted to teach. I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to go into archaeology. I, I moved to Seattle and went to grad school to get a PhD in archaeology, um, thinking that eventually I would go back into academia. I really loved the moment in classes where you tell a a cool story and the students just light up and they're like, I never thought about it that way. You know, there's a really interesting energy involved in academia and getting to spend your time teaching the next generation and doing your own research. That sounds glorious, but naturally that's not how things fell out, but I, I enjoy the path that I took. Cool. So then at what point did you first discover UX? I discovered UX Well, I had an inkling of it through undergrad. There's always that course where your professor tells you about how there are anthropologists who work at Toyota and they are the reason that there are so many cup holders in cars. And so I knew that that was an industry that was open to anthropologists. I wasn't incredibly fascinated with it at that point in my life, but I graduated with my undergrad. I worked as an archaeologist for a couple of years and I went back to grad school and I moved to D.C. after finishing up the master's portion of my Ph.D. and was working at a nonprofit. Once I was in the, you know, the quote unquote real world outside of the academic uh, mm-hmm. sphere, that's when I started to realize that there is even more impact that I could have if I wanted to go into an industry like UX. My mm-hmm. partner at the time was working for the federal government, doing a lot of design thinking and, and user research methods to help build better digital services for the American people, which is a wildly huge and impactful type of, you know, work to do. So that inspired me seeing what 
potential projects were out there and then the even larger impact. Impact was something that I really wanted to have um, even, you know, in undergrad, which is what drew me to anthropology because we, we care a lot about people. Mm -hmm. We want to make things better in the world. And so seeing the kind of public and private sector opportunities with the skills that I had, that made me think, oh, you know, I heard about this thing called UX research. I know that there are anthropologists who do this. I can see people in government doing it right now. I see people in the private sector doing it right now. I have those skills. They seem to really like their jobs. I, it just, it was a natural fit. And so that's what kind of coalesced it all, it all drew me towards moving into UX research. Cool. So what steps did you take to get there? You know, did you do informational interviews? Did you take any additional, you know, certificates, you know, anything? I did everything. I joined all of the meetups in DC that were even tangentially related to UX research. I had a giant stack of books besides my bed table for, you know, a year and a half. I read everything on the internet. Um, there are so many good resources out there. There are so many good, like, mini certificates or other, you know, like, uh, little programs that you can do to beef up on particular skills or thinking about, you know, larger processes of how research works or, you know, how to do a usability test. So I consumed everything, joined all the groups, reached out to all of the people that I could find on LinkedIn who are in my area. And I did so many coffee chats, um, both in DC and then across the country, just through my network. And that was incredibly useful. The process I took, which I describe in my book, is really to approach the career change as its own sort of research project. So the meetup groups and the informational interviews, I thought of those as the ethnographic work and the, mm -hmm. the books and, and reading all the articles online and taking all those courses. Um, that was, you know, the, the primary and secondary research that, that helped me bring together a whole bunch of ideas from a lot of schools of thoughts and a lot of um, well-known UX researchers and designers. And that is, yeah, that's how I approached it. Yeah, that's great. The, uh, you know, the analogy to, to a research project is really apt. So it's, it's, it's a great way for everybody to think about it. And, you know, given that, um, you know, I'm curious, well, I'm curious to know what you did to maybe build up a resume and or portfolio that you could use in an interview. And I'm wondering if like in any way, this research project you did to understand UX, you know, was sort of like a portfolio piece almost. Almost. It certainly was a, a good uh, conversation starter in interviews and <laughs> informational interviews. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't many artifacts that came out of it that could go into a portfolio, but I think the framing and the, the mindset of approaching this career change as a research project and it's in, in of itself is one nice because you feel more freedom to experiment. You can create different types of resumes and send those out and see how they go. You can ask different questions and in informational interviews and see what works best, what gets, you know, what helps you identify the next steps in, in this process um, based on how your informational interview, we like how they respond. So it reduced a lot of that stress because you can think of it as its own project. It's not about you not being good enough or you not having enough skills yet. It's about the iteration of the project. It's about learning and exploring, which was useful for me, at least in a job search. I know those can be really stressful. Yeah, for sure. And so speaking of the stress, what kind of challenges you know, did you have any particular challenges that popped out along the way? Aside from the fact, of course, of, you know, wanting to get the job and having to iterate and go through that maybe a couple times, but did you, uh, is there anything sort of major that stood out or it, alternately maybe in the people that reach out to you for advice, is there any kind of big challenges that you're hearing people talk about? Hmm. My big challenge was figuring out how to be effective at the job search when you are really excited about a career change or a new industry, at least from my end, I approached it like a buckshot. Like I just sent resumes everywhere. Nothing was tailored. If the job even remotely sounded like research, I applied, even if I wasn't a good fit. 
And that was really demoralizing because obviously that's not how any good job search works, whether you're <laughs> changing careers or not. You know, the cultivating and creating kind of targeted job leads is, is the much more effective way to approach it. So, you know, reaching out through LinkedIn or finding who is actually hiring and cultivating relationships there, that's a much better approach. And that's actually how I ended up finding my job, you know? So that is something that I tell folks to not do (laughs) and don't do a buckshot approach. Definitely cultivate each lead, be really intentional. Don't worry about not finding a job because there's so many out there and the industry is continuing to grow. It's just a matter of being patient and it's a matter of knowing where you want to work and what kind of team you want to work on and what kind of company you want to work for, what sort of projects you're interested in and being really intentional about those choices. Um, Something that I hear from folks who reach out to me though, is they're just not sure where to start. They don't know how to take the first step. They just graduated or they're graduating in a year or they're having a midlife career change and, you know, their, their kids are grown and they decide they want to go back to, to work and have heard about this industry. And it seems really interesting and it fits their kind of background experience, but they don't know how to bridge that gap of, I don't actually have a job title on my resume that says researcher. So how do I get that? How do I make that make sense to people who are reading over my resume, who are, you know, reviewing and interviewing me for these jobs. And so how did you approach that? So I approached that uh, twofold. It's easier if you have a background that makes sense in terms of the types of research methods that UX does. So from an anthropology and archaeology background, I could draw on ethnography. I could make that translation of, you know, when I say ethnography, what I mean, what that means for what I could do as a UX researcher is contextual inquiries or, you know, moderated interviews. The, The translation of the terms is something that you can do if you naturally have those skills, but you just don't call them what the industry calls them. So that's step one for sure. For folks that don't have, you know, that research background, perhaps through undergrad or grad school or previous uh, career positions, see if you can create that in your current job, which is something that I did. I carved out my work at the nonprofit to take on a bigger and bigger research role. So I got to do a little bit more product management. I got to do more research that was kind of self-directed. That was outside the initial scope of my job description. Mm -hmm. But because I was able to kind of advocate for why we need that, I was able to put on my resume, sure, I might not have a UX researcher title, but I have all the responsibilities and the the roles. And I did the things (laughs) that UX researchers do in their jobs. It just might have been called something different on a different Mm -hmm. job title. So that certainly helps. And then speaking to that really clearly in your cover letters, in your actual interviews, in those early relationships that you build with folks at that company that you're interested in working at. It's that human connection that really helps to, you know, do the translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, still, you know, to your earlier point about the bookshot approach, uh, you know, we all hear the, the estimates of how many jobs are still filled through networking and connections. So yeah, yeah. Build a, it's, it's all about relationships and we're good at that right as mm-hmm. anthropologists anyway so it's it's a natural fit for us to to engage in the job search in that way so mm-hmm. nothing exactly. to be scared of there so fast forward you're now a ux researcher um at ad hoc so when you got into that role you know and i appreciate you just said that in the nonprofit role you did you know some projects that sort of lend itself to this but was there anything that kind of caught you off guard or that you weren't prepared for or that, you know, you needed to, to learn? Yeah, I think when you're learning about methods, you are so caught up in how to do them correctly. So you're interested in following them to a T. You need to make sure you've crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, hit every item on the checklist. But once you get into the industry, especially in the in the government sector that I work in, flexibility is key. Like you might not always be able to do the ideal study. You might not always get as many people as you want. You might not always get as much um, support from your stakeholders as you want. So learning how to work within 
ever-shifting and often amorphous, you know, relationships and, and domains is, is really key. So knowing when it's okay to say, I didn't get eight people for this study, but I got five and we're not going to ship this in its final form. So we can do more studies later on. Like, that's okay. Mm -hmm. The point is to get some information now and to not be caught up in making perfect the enemy of the good in in many cases. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, um, was that a little bit of a, you know, growing process for you? You know, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, right. Um, yeah, it seems as if, yeah, obviously most people who make it into industry, it seems like many get to that point in their thinking. Um, but is there something that helped you realize that? Like any sort of value you saw coming out of even providing, you know, sort of dripping some feedback along the way, you know, if, if it was after the five interviews and then dripping a little bit more later, you know, is there anything mm-hmm. particular that helped you realize like this is beneficial anyway? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of education that you need to give to your stakeholders and in our industry, at least of why it is okay to only have five and why, why having that more regular drip of feedback is actually much better than getting one giant glut of feedback at one time and never getting any feedback ever again. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was definitely a, a mind shift that had to happen. And it's an interesting moment when you realize it's not just about, um, Hey, this is something that happens as folks grow in their seniority and in, in, in their roles and confidence in their skills. It's not just about making sure that one test is great, you know, that I did this perfectly. It's about the the longer term, especially in the work that I do. It's not so much that I need to, you know, create a statistically significant piece of research that I could then write a journal article or defend in, in front of a dissertation committee. It's not that level of um, academic rigor, I guess you could say. Not to say that it isn't rigorous, but it is more to the point of let's be iterative. Let's be flexible. Let's do something that's valuable, even if it's not perfect, because that's going to move us ever closer to meeting our user needs, meeting budgetary requirements, getting things shipped faster. You know, that's more useful than, say, getting 20 people to do this usability study. So growing in your confidence to say that to stakeholders is really important. But then that's also part of the process is educating them on why we want to think about research as this ongoing, you know, kind of service design, design thinking, human-centered process and not get caught up in the the tiny details of this one particular small study, for instance. Mm-hmm. So I want to touch on that, but just a quick comment, you know, for anybody listening who maybe hasn't had the experience of working within this space yet, you know, many organizations are building and releasing on releasing software on some cadence, right? So we need, mm-hmm. we don't always have the time, depending on like, you know, if you're in a valuative type research role, we don't often have the luxury of spending a long time because we need to deliver value so that the team can keep moving and building, right? And iterating in their own right, the rest of the team. And then we're oftentimes moving on to the next piece, doing the same thing and kind of staying ahead and say engineering, right? And so we are in a constant process, if we, you know, know, constant cadence ourself in many ways, but there is a, you know, there's a rationale for why we are doing it that way. And it's, it's not that bad per se. It's just different. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. But, um, so going back to the stakeholder comment and, you know, in there, what you said sort of gets to the point, gets to a point of, uh, our job is a lot more than research. So I ask everybody, like, you know, what their day looks like or what their week looks like or what their month looks like, whatever it is. So tell me, like, all about, you know, what you're doing at Ad Hoc. And it doesn't have to be projects, but just what does the role really look like that incorporates research, but it goes beyond that substantially? That is such a good point that you aren't just doing research with end users, you know, 100% of the time in your job. I think I looked over my hours recently and I might spend 20% of my time actually doing user sessions, which is unfortunate because that's the really fun part of the job often, right? Like interacting with users and identifying their problems, showing them prototypes and getting their feedback. That's really energizing to me. But unfortunately the best part of any job is the not often the part that you do all the time, but that's okay because 
like you said, you're not just doing research with end users. You're constantly doing research with other team members, with your company, with the stakeholders and your clients. So most of my day actually doesn't look like user research on paper, but it, it really is um, when you think about the longer-term relationships that you're building, the longer-term processes that you're trying to put in place. Most of my day is meetings, unfortunately, like everyone. Um, but as a, as a principal researcher at my company, we, we do a lot of mentoring of other researchers. We do a lot of collaboration across different projects to try to make sure as a research practice at the company that we're all aligned, even if we might be working with different clients or on different projects. So a lot of internal projects, a lot of optimizing our processes like recruiting or the tools that we use, a lot of uh, serving as the heart of the company in many, many cases, you know, mm -hmm. making sure that what we hear from our team members and from our other coworkers is percolated up to leadership or to HR or things that might have an impact on, you know, the the employee experience. It's not necessarily a user experience all the time, but there's lots of people's experiences that you need to account for in any company. And research is really naturally situated to do that within any company. Yeah, great. So I think one of the interesting things about your role, and it will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe ad hoc is fully remote and has been, you know, is, was before COVID. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if you have any on the ground researchers anywhere, but, um, so what did, you know, maybe what did, uh, what have you learned from ad hoc being fully online? Because obviously a lot of anthropologists are used to being sort of in context in the physical context, right? Not maybe just virtually. So how, I guess, let's say this, how, how did you trans uh, transfer into that? How did you do sort of moving into that mode? What have you learned from that? And then I have maybe a few follow-ups. Mm hmm we do most of our research remotely, that's true. For a number of our products, we are able to go on the ground and actually speak with users either in context or through <clears throat> in-person interviews at, at third, like at our office. We technically have an office in DC, but most of the company is spread across the US. Um, so there's often a mix. Most of us have done in-person research and we do enjoy that, but it's also really lovely to be able to speak with a wide representation of the U.S., of the American people, um, given the work that we do. So we don't have to worry so much about not being able to get rural folks or folks in cities that we might not be co-located in, which is really great. Um, what we've had to learn to do is be very flexible, of course. This is going to be a theme throughout is, is flexibility and being able to improv because, you know, AirPods don't connect and sometimes internet cuts out and sometimes a participant doesn't know how to install Zoom and there's there's lots of, you know, kind of tech help that you might need to do in a session in addition to actually running the session. So being able to wear many hats is useful. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a an interesting process to do most of your sessions remotely, but you do learn how to build rapport really quickly over a video call. So, you know, video on and maybe let your cat run around in the background because maybe your participant has a cat as well. Like the humanization part is we're all kind of doing this in our homes. And so normalizing that helps a participant feel much more comfortable. And with the types of projects that we do, that's where folks might be using our software anyways. So it mm -hmm. almost serves as a more effective, you know, contextual inquiry. We get to actually remotely, but virtually be in people's homes with them as they might be using the websites we're building or the apps that we're building. So that's a fun, fun extra facet. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, it's, um, this doesn't just apply to ad hoc or or anybody else who's now doing research remotely, but there are some things, like you said, you know, to be able to reach people across the U.S., right? So there are some benefits to to this style of research. And, you know, even after COVID, I imagine we will, many firms will use this style of research more frequently for, you know, when they need to reach out, say, to, to people across the country, whatever it may be, right? Uh, there's a place for both. And so for anybody mm -hmm. listening who might 
sort of be horrified by the idea of not being in person, right? There is, there's value to it and it is, you know, it's a good skill to learn and a very good transferable skill for the future post COVID mm -hmm. and, you know, nothing to be sort of afraid or shy of. Um, but it also presents, you know, interesting opportunities with the employee experience. And uh, you briefly mentioned that. So can you, are you able to speak to anything about, you know, how you say as a principal researcher, you know, and a, a mentor sort of handles the need to, to provide mentoring, you know, while remote and not be able to be together with, you know, maybe a junior researcher or whatever, whatever title they may have. Mm -hmm. I think it's helpful that our company has been remote from the beginning. So that's been kind of baked into our culture. So folks are very comfortable slacking each other, sending emails, um, have most of my coworkers, you know, cell numbers. So after hours, we can text if we need to. We're very comfortable if there's a question, jumping on a video call. And I spend most of my day on video calls with my team. So it, in a, in a way, it doesn't feel like I've never been in person with them, you know, in the last year or so, at least, haven't been able to get together as a company or as a team. But typically, we do have um, multiple opportunities throughout the year to get together in person, which is great. That's I enjoy being around my colleagues in person, and that's fabulous for building those relationships and building that trust when you are later remote and only on video calls. Um, so that goes a long way to building a environment where my junior researchers feel very comfortable sending me a Slack message or jumping on a video call with me because they want some feedback on how to craft this conversation guide or we join each other's um, interviews with participants and can give feedback after that. So there's different avenues that we utilize to do, you know, that relationship building internally, that provide that mentorship, provide that support, build that trust that, sure, are, are lovely to do in person. But I don't, in my experience, I haven't found that we lose a whole lot in terms of that trust or relationship by being remote. In fact, I think it adds a lot of value because we work across different time zones. And so if somebody is wanting an after hours on the East Coast, that's still my afternoon here on the West Coast. So there's a lot more flexibility built in and it's not mm -hmm. reliant on, hey, are they in their office or not? <laughs> Can I, do I have to walk down the door and walk, walk down the hall and knock the door and see if they're in? I can just send them a Slack message and it's it's easy enough to jump onto a call or something. Mm -hmm. And how about, how does that relate to once you've, con you know, once you have your findings on a project and you're, you know, you're maybe um, trying to share the insights with stakeholders and that could be, you know, the clients slash project sponsor as well as maybe internal, anything that you've learned there, you know, working remotely, that would be interesting to share with everybody because, you know, oftentimes you hear it's, you know, you're, you're sort of talking, right, kind of water cooler talk, sharing in that like very sort of natural way. But of course, in your case, it has to be a little bit more structured. You have to sort of set up the meeting, plan when you're going to share these. Um, you have to obviously share them in a certain way, which is, for, you know, which is digital in the sense. So anything that stood out to you that you know, would be really good for people to know? Hmm. I think we do have a lot of natural water cooler sharing anyways. It's a little more passive than if everybody was standing around the, the coffee machine and talking about their recent projects. But we do utilize collaboration collaboration tools like Slack and, and Mural and Miro to Google Docs. We rely on a lot to craft those basically throughout the entire research process. So the conversation guides, the research plans, the actual notes, the analysis from sessions, all of those are kind of shared within the team. They're accessible by everyone. So there's a little bit of passive uh, information sharing that happens naturally. But like you said, we do have to be really intentional about making sure the product owners and the other stakeholders and our clients are aware that the research is done and they need to come to this readout meeting. <laughs> so there is some extra structure there. Flexibility, again, is going to come up because there are cases where our clients might not be able to use a certain tool. So we need to make sure that it's in a place that's accessible for them. They might not be able to call in on Zoom. They might need to use something else. So being aware of that and accommodating that is 
a really critical piece of that kind of digital relationship, that digital share out. So having those conversations up front about, hey, what tools can you all access? Can you test this for me before we do the readout? Because I don't want to be in the situation where we're trying to present you something, we share a link, and then you can't get access to it. Because that's, that's not great. It doesn't look good for anybody. And then it just creates frustration. So having those upfront kind of housekeeping conversations can be really useful. Um, and then there's just the how, like how to present digitally and how to um, kind of make sure your notifications are off and, and close any windows that you don't want to be accidentally screen shared and, you know, put your phone away. And, and if it's, you know, kick the dog out of the office in case the mailman comes and they bark. So there's other little considerations to think of that you don't necessarily have to worry about in an office space, but those are, those are my key takeaways is have those kind of conversations up front to know what folks can access and, and then make sure your uh, computer housekeeping is in order before you start presenting. Great. And um, so maybe we can talk about the book. So sure. you wrote a book. October 2020, I think it came out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so congratulations, first off. It's really cool. Um, Thank you. you. got some, some, you know, some good quotes. Uh, I saw uh, Steve Portugal, right, gave you one. So it's pretty uh, pretty impressive. So you might maybe tell everybody, you know, why you did that and, um, you know, what, uh, what you're hoping to share and get, you know, help everybody figure out there. To maybe a little mm-hmm. overview on the book. Mm-hmm. I wrote the book because I had a hard time making the career transition myself, and I definitely didn't do it effectively. And I hit lots of bumps in the road, and I used the buckshot approach to apply for jobs, and I didn't always think through things as um, intentionally as I could. And looking back, twenty twenty is always, yeah. I wouldn't have done it that way. And I uh, wrote a blog post a few years ago about how I had made that transition. And since then, folks reach out to me through LinkedIn. They find the blog post. They send me an email saying, hey, I also have a similar background. I saw that you did this. I don't know where to start. How do I do this? So that happened over and over. After a couple of years, I realized maybe there's a, a lot of interest here. You know, there's people who are graduating with their anthropology degree or other social science degrees, and they don't know what to do next. They're not sure what that next step is. And this seems like a really interesting field for them. It's growing. It pays well. You get to have a big impact. Like that's the trifecta, right? The Mm -hmm. ideal job I could get paid to do anthropology and and be paid well. This is perfect. Imagine that. Imagine that, Uh, especially for many folks who are coming out of academia who may have been you know, bouncing from postdoc to postdoc, which is a very frustrating process. That seems like a really nice light at the end of the tunnel. Like, hey, I don't have to move to a city that I don't want to live in to take a postdoc just to, you know, scrape by. I could stay in the city that I love and and afford to feed my family, which is like always a great thing. (laughs) Um, So I think there, there was, there just was a interesting confluence of academic jobs going down other industry jobs going up, people realizing that their skills could translate. So that's the demographic that I was really trying to target is folks who had been in a similar position to me, just coming out of grad school or undergrad, kind of looking around saying, what do I do next? How do I take this next step? There's this job over there that sounds really cool, but I don't know how to bridge that gap. So I'm hoping that folks can read the book, get a sense of a process that you know, worked for me after lots of reflecting, how could I have improved that process? That's what's in the book there. Um, I spoke with a bunch of other anthropologists and folks from other social science backgrounds who did a similar transition. So it's not just my story in the book. You, you get to hear from folks with a variety of backgrounds, came from a variety of industries about what they did to get their UX job and what they thought of that process. So I'm hoping that folks can see a little bit of themselves in the book, feel confident knowing that this is a process that has worked for hundreds, thousands of people. Many, many researchers come from a variety of backgrounds. That's kind of been the culture of the industry for a long time is there's folks from 
all walks of life, which brings a lot of great perspective and, and uh, experiences to the field of UX research. Yeah. So hoping that folks can you know, read through it, get some ideas on what next steps to take, gain the confidence, know that it'll work out in the end and have some concrete step-by-step uh, like action plan to follow, to fall back on. So speaking of an action plan, maybe we can, but let's, uh, let's maybe run through a few scenarios. So if there's a student who's listening, mm-hmm. you know, and they still have a little bit of time to plan, right? So that could be planning for an internship or even just a volunteering opportunity, right? It could be a number of things, but let's say there's somebody out there who has a little runaway in front of them. What would you recommend they start doing now to get, you know, to have the first job in UX? Mm-hmm. So if there are any courses that you can take at your, at your school, maybe that's a design course, maybe that's a intro to coding course, maybe that's a ethnography course. If you're lucky enough to go to school where there's actually an HCD or UX research program, see if you can audit a class, see if you can take that course. Um, many of them are offered at a graduate level, but if you can go talk to the professor, maybe they would be happy to let you sit in. Um, if that doesn't work, reach out to other folks either in your academic circle or outside of your academic circle. So find other folks on LinkedIn or join some meetup groups, figure out who the researchers are in your community and start to build relationships with them because many times those are the folks who might have uh, a company who does an internship. And if you can make that connection before you've even graduated, that can be a great step towards, you know, being the first person to hear about that internship when it gets opened up. Um, Figuring out how to build up a portfolio and your skill set before you've even graduated can also be really great. So volunteering might be an option. You might be able to tag on to other projects that, say, a professor who does work at an HCD department, maybe they have some side projects that you could tag in on. Just be exploratory, you know, reach out to anybody. Don't be afraid. The industry is very, very welcoming. It's very, very open to lots of people reaching out, you know, cold emailing, cold calling, cold showing up at an office, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but there's there's a lot of warmth in the field and people are very interested in helping out others who are also breaking into the field because we've all been there. We've all done that. This has been the process that so many of us have taken. So there's a passing on the goodwill that you'll you'll find often in the industry. So be brave, reach out, see if there are projects you can join, see if there are classes you can take, explore what companies might be offering internships. Even if the internship isn't open, see if you can reach out to the researchers at that company who might offer that internship and see if you can just volunteer there, maybe create your own sort of internship. If there are other companies that don't currently offer internships, but you think might be open to it, reach out to them as well. See if you can build up your own kind of make your own internship, make your own little side projects. Great. And how about for the group of researchers out there who, you know, let's say they've graduated with whatever degree it may be. Yeah. For example, a lot of, you know, a lot of PhD students have a significant amount of research. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a very different challenge because they have the research. Oftentimes it comes down to, you know, I find when, when, and working with them, it's it's more about how do you reframe that research, right? Yep. Um, so what suggestions do you have in that space to sort of look inward and realize the value of what they have in their past and then to translate that to something that will work in UX? Mm-hmm. This is such a common problem. It's it's almost like an imposter syndrome, but you, you think, mm-hmm. oh, I've done, you know, I've only done this one project. Sure, it took seven years, but it was only one project. It's like, that's not true. That's not true. This is many phases of a project. You know, you you brought a lot of skill sets to your dissertation or your master's thesis. So breaking apart what exactly you did at different phases of that process can be really useful. And then doing that translation. Okay, I managed I managed grant funding and I managed a team of other researchers, or I managed lab techs, or whatever it was that you studied. 
you know, I have a colleague who loves to tell the story about how somebody reached out to her and said, all I've ever done is studied, you know, the, the blue heron. That was my PhD. That all that's, what is that going to do? What, what transferable skills are there with my expertise in blue herons? And, you know, she tells them you managed a project for seven years. That's product management. That's project management. That is an incredibly transferable skill. You've managed participants. You've managed potentially incentives or any sort of grant um, funding. It, it really, it really is about breaking down the idea that I didn't produce anything of value because it's just like a dissertation. It didn't go very far out into the into the world. Um, but that's not true because you learned a lot of skills throughout the way. So I think there's one part just reframing that for yourself and and seeing the value in it outside of the academic value necessarily, outside of the degree. And then sitting down and actually mapping out, okay, I did this, I did this, I did this. What is a transferable skill that I might have that I can apply to UX research. And the nice thing about UX research is there are so many different skills that we use. You know, oftentimes we do do a little bit of design. Oftentimes we do do a little bit of product management. Some of us can do a little bit of coding and build up our own prototypes to test. You know, there's a lot of different skill sets that you bring and no researcher and no research job is just a cookie cutter must be able to do A, B, and C. Every job has different um kind of skill sets and domain expertise and and personalities that would would fit with it. So yeah, it's about reframing. It's about, you know, breaking out of that, you know, the idea of the the blue heron research is not real research because it was a bird, not humans. But that's not true because you learned a lot of the same skills. Yeah. Yeah, well said. And how about any um, specific recommendations for resumes and portfolios? So this is, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this as a fellow researcher. I feel like portfolios are such a hot topic, like contested topic in research. Do we need them? Do we not need them? It's definitely useful as a designer. That's, I think, where they kind of came from, that Mm -hmm. transfer from UX design into research. It was just kind of a natural fit. I have a portfolio. I look at portfolios of the folks that I interview when they apply for jobs, if they provide a link or any sort of artifacts. I think they are incredibly useful if you're making that career transition and you need that extra little bit of proof, let's call it, that you understand what you did before and how that translates to UX research. That little bit of proof that I know these methods, I can do this type of work. I think further along in your career might become less necessary. And there's certainly folks that I talk to who have been doing research you know, since the 90s and early 2000s who are like, I've never had a portfolio. <laughs> so it, it really is, is it, it kind of depends, you know, but it definitely doesn't hurt. So if you are making that career transition, you really want to kind of pad your application, you know, really put your best self out there. I say do it, especially if it doesn't require a whole lot of effort. You know, you can throw together a, a couple of snippets from, you know, a research project that you volunteered on or trim down your dissertation to, you know, a 10 slide presentation on how this research might translate to the type of research that a UX researcher does. That doesn't hurt. And it provides an extra talking point in conversations for informational interviews. It provides extra context for when you get to that interview stage for a job application. I also think it really helps you as a reflection tool to craft that portfolio yourself, to walk yourself through, okay, what has been my journey? What skills do I actually have? What do I want to show as somebody who's making this transition? How do I put my best step, my best foot forward? So as a kind of practice for yourself and how to tell your own story, I think it's great as something to demonstrate that you can make this career transition, it's also really great. So my thought is do them. I think they're useful. I will look at them if you apply to a job. (laughs) (laughs) But I I recognize it's like some people think they aren't necessary, but it it doesn't hurt. 
Yeah, I'm with you. You know, I've said it in the presence you know, of other researchers at times, and they, yeah, they've said the same. I, you know, need it, but um, I really like your point about you know, the, as a reflection tool, right? The act of putting it together sort of helps us. It's like teaching almost, right? The act mm-hmm. of teaching helps you sort of really solidify that that knowledge in your mind, and um, so I think it's helpful for that. I would agree with that, and it's also it is helpful for the other party, you know, the interviewers, to help see how you think about a problem. Yeah. Right. And, and and how you think, you know, through the problem, how you approach it, how, you, you know, in a very methodical way. Um, I do think, you know, used as a tool to even guide that conversation, it can help people from sort of jumping all over, right. And just sort mm-hmm. of stay on track and really demonstrate, you know, a clear path and draw a line through it. Um, so, one thing that I think is worth pointing out, and I think I've already said once, maybe on this podcast, but you know, for anybody who has worked in, you know, has some research experience, one thing I always call out is it's it's also not the tool to like try to display the visual designs of a designer, right? Like it's not it's not about displaying the end product that you didn't really design. It's it's really about like what did we contribute to the process as researchers? Because um, mm-hmm. I've seen some of those, you know, it's, oh yeah, it looks. Looks great, but tell me about what you did in the project and, you know, what did you do by yourself versus as a team and, you know, really what's your role and so on and so forth. So anyway. It's such um, an easy trap. Yeah. As a researcher mm-hmm. to think that I need, my portfolio needs to look like a designer's portfolio, but oftentimes it's, there's no pictures. It's just a couple of pages. It's a slide deck. It does not need to be highly visual. So don't let that hold you back. If you feel like I don't have the design chops to make this look pretty that's not what it's about. It's, it's definitely, like you said, it's about your process. It's about how you think it's about showing me as the interviewer, how do you approach projects? Because that's the interesting thing for research. Mm. Yeah. And so you also said in there, you know, like it's not about looking pretty right. And so that brings up another question about the resume. So today, you know, you see lots of resumes that are highly designed and, you know, I mean, I, I personally like that because I find that they're, easy to read, right? It's, I view design as like, it's like why we use punctuation, right? We're trying to help our readers understand our content. So if, you know, a visually designed resume that is laid out, you know, to help me best understand the content, I appreciate, but there's probably also some that are over-designed maybe. And, you know, if you search for, you know, like UX, like, you know, UX resumes, you're finding many that are now designed, you know, templates uh, that are out there. So do you have a preference on what you receive, you know, what you're reviewing from like a potential junior researcher and any thoughts there? Yeah, I, I was so into making really overly designed resumes early in my transition. You don't even want to see how bad some of them are. (laughs) I think that's another perhaps unfortunate holdover or kind of transference from UX design where it is very common to kind of show your design skills in your resume like that and in and of itself is an artifact for a design, um, a designer to present. I prefer something that is human readable. I tell people you should probably design it to be machine readable as well. So not doing overly complicated things in Illustrator or Canva or any other and design heavy tool. Um, it's something that I find often with more junior folks who are, say, applying to a large company where a human isn't even looking at your resume until many steps into the process. So the algorithm is not going to look at the Canva or Illustrator resume and be like, yes, that's a person I hire. In fact, it might not even be able to read it. And so you automatically get kicked out of the of the um, pipeline because it's not machine readable. So that's something to consider if you're thinking about moving into a larger company is make it make it work with their systems. Like that's part of the research project of finding a job is how do I meet the needs of the recruiter? How do I meet the needs of the system that that company might be using to actually hire folks? Um, that's where those informational interviews can be really helpful. Try to get some inside perspective on like, what does your hiring process even look like? I also don't enjoy reading the resumes that are just completely plain text. Like I do want it to seem like you put some effort in, but it doesn't have to be overly designed. It doesn't have to be complicated. It just needs to be clear. It needs to be readable. 
it needs to convey to me what your skills are. I don't need fancy backgrounds. I don't need lots of color. I just wanted to demonstrate to me that you are trying to demonstrate to me what sort of information is important for me to know about you. Great. Well, I think that's all been very helpful. So is there anything you would like to bring up that maybe we didn't cover? You know, any any initiatives that you're involved in besides the book that you would want to bring attention to? Hmm. We did not cover the variety of, you know, extra mentorship programs that are out there. Each city I've found, um, especially if you're in a larger city. And even nowadays, it doesn't actually matter because everyone's remote. You could join a neighboring city for all you, for all matters. Um, Look up in your area what sort of mentorship opportunities there are, because there might be a lot more than you think there are. In Seattle, we have a number of both peer mentorship and then one-on-one junior-senior mentorship programs that are all, you know, kind of the UXPA, the IXDA, the any any sort of chapter of research or kind of UX, or in some cities, it might be more design-focused, but... There are lots of chapters, lots of programs of, you know, nonprofits or other other kind of organizations that provide a lot of mentorship and community support. They might have talks, they might do classes. Look up what goes on in your area because that is a great place to beef up your skills, but also build out those relationships. Because those folks are the ones that, you know, five years from now when you have gotten your first UX job and now you want to move on to your next company those relationships are the ones you want to lean on to find that next perfect job. Yeah, great. And so thanks for everything. Where can all of the uh, listeners find you at? Where should they look you up? Yeah, I have a personal website, which is laurelsanubi.com. The book website also links to my personal. It's iwantauxjob.com. And I am at laurelsanubi on most of the social medias. So feel free to reach out. Um, Always happy to do coffee chats, answer emails, look over resumes, portfolios. I, I love chatting with other people who are making this career transition. Great. Well, thanks for offering that. And uh, I'll link to, obviously, your website and you know and everything, the book and so on and so forth. So, um, so Laurel, thanks so much for your time. It was really helpful, um, I think, for everybody to hear it. Appreciate you, you carving that time out. So thanks very much. Absolutely. This has been great. Thanks so much, Matt. Okay. Take care. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotous.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.